This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. This means a lot as a fan of your podcast and also as somebody who's trying in an amateur way to document the moment. Um, I'm trying to keep up with all things that are happening in Lebanon, albeit for the last few months from New York. Um, I left back in January. Uh, prior to all this, while I was away, I would listen to your podcast. And I think I grew addicted to audio format through different podcasts, and yours is one of them. So I, it's an honor for me to have this discussion with you. You're the experts here. I'm the novice. I really don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying. And uh, <laughs> it, it also, it's, it's a pleasure to have Susan join, uh, the producer of all time. The what was the like the the penul, penul, penultimate producer? I don't know how to say these words properly. <laughs> The superstar <laughs> behind the scenes who uh, keeps that podcast running. So it's an honor for me to have you on as well. Nizar, uh, it, we, uh, we all hope that you make it through your surgery tomorrow. We know you will. So thank you in particular for joining. So all of this means a lot to me. Equally that it's late at night and you're willing to talk to me. I, I appreciate all of the above. Before we get into the messy terrain of Lebanese politics, sort of the difficult stuff, I'm just curious, your own immediate lives, given all that's been happening, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's the financial crisis, hyperinflation, your day-to-day lives, maybe even your work routine, Beirut today and your lives. I'm just curious, your, your, maybe your own immediate experience, given what we're going through. And Nisar, let's start with you and then we can go to Ben and Susan. Yeah, um, it's it's really tough. Uh, I have to say, it's really tough because I mean, apart from the anxiety that you get from from what's happening around you, apart from the sometimes the the worrying about you know COVID nineteen etc., it's just the feeling of um, of hopelessness, of desperation that you feel when you know for sure, like because when you analyze the situation, you know that things can't improve in the short term. Like there is no short-term horizon for or prospects for um, better times in Lebanon. And uh, you know that you are ruled by people who really don't give a shit about you. So it's it's like, it's so frustrating because you feel like, okay, I have to keep doing the stuff I'm doing, but um, but there's nothing that's going to change. Nothing's going to change in the short term or anytime soon. So it feels, it feels like a lot of pressure on me uh, personally because I get a lot of self-realization from um, what I feel I'm contributing to society and social change. So, yeah, it's really tough. 
I was just going to add one thing. We talked about it before recording. Whether we add or remove curse words, we're keeping them in. So thank you, Niza. One minute in, you're already cursed. That's, that's, that's a clear sign of where it's going to go. I, appreciate I mean, that. I at least I at least asked Nizar. You just came out with it, dropping an S, uh, you know, dropping the word shit all over the place. That's how you were place. Okay. Actually, the answer should have just been shit. Le mot juste. Ben, is it a shared experience with you? And I, I know that you guys know each other well. That you sort of have you, oh. your friendship. I think extends beyond just podcasting so that's uh oh yeah yeah 100 yeah, so but is it is it a familiar is it a shared experience that kind of level of in a way it's it's a mixture of what you said shit and also a sense of despair that we're all that we're all experiencing does, does that resonate with you uh yeah yeah for sure i mean i i'm i'm certainly in a, a different position uh I, I think that nizar as a foreigner being here you know all you know my family is back in the United States, uh, which, you know, they have to face their own, you know, fears of coronavirus and, and all of these other things that are going on in the world right now. Yeah. But they, their life savings wasn't wiped out. Yeah. You know, their, you know, the, their institutions and their communities, you know, aren't under full scale attack, uh, you know, on an economic or financial level. Um, uh, and, and so I don't have that, uh, quite the same, I guess, familial connections, you know, that I think, uh, you know, everybody here in Lebanon feels, but at the same time, I've lived here for over a decade. My, my friends are all here, you know, my networks are all here. Um, and I'm here living this. And so I do feel, I, I definitely do feel it. I wouldn't pretend to say I feel it like everybody else. Cause I don't, but I do, uh, you know, it's it, it's one of those things where these two really huge events have have come together the the financial crisis and then you have COVID on top of that. Yeah. Uh, it, and uh, and it, it, it's it's created a a, a new thing a, a, a new system uh, where you know I don't I I don't really recognize it anymore. You know, I I stay in. I don't go out too much. I still go out because you still have to do errands and, and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's just such a, a very different way of living. And it's it, it's nice in certain ways because there's less pressure, maybe. You know, people aren't as expecting of you. But it's, you know, it cuts you off from a lot of people at the same time. Um, uh, and, and I think that that's a difficult thing to sort of get get your head around and figure out how to cope with you know it's almost like you have you still have one foot in one foot out but one foot is deeper in lebanon than the other one. Oh yeah no like i'm a, yeah. i'm here yeah right yeah 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 100 percent. susan yeah. your experience and i i mean i've only met you once it's funny i should i should note this i i've i've known ben for i think almost 10 years but we our friendship is sort of it's 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 it, it, it's interesting. It includes me picking you up on the highway once, I think, on your way home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gave me a ride home. I really appreciate it. It was too hot out to walk. You never gave me 2,000 lira. I kept, like, wondering what happened, but you just sort of walked away. I'm like, no, no, this is my job now. <laughs> <laughs> when you saw it, I, I saw you I, frequently. Oh, so, sorry, Ben. What were you going to say? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you can collect your 2,000 as soon as you come here. Or, yeah. or next time in New York, I will bring... Two thou for you, 
All right. 200,000. Deal? <laughs> I adjusted my rates. Nizar, I was lucky. Although we don't know each other, I, I don't think we've ever met in person, but I saw you frequently in Martyrs Square. And actually, I think uh, it was next to Riyadh Salah. You, you gave a talk. This is maybe two months into the protest now. I don't remember exactly when. It may have been January. But uh, I mean, I saw you. You're visible. And I was always listening to you as well, so it's almost like a familiarity. Susan, I only met you once, and we met at a podcast society secret club meeting or something. I don't know what it we was. Did. Like, we just did. A very sort of every podcaster in Beirut sort of representation showing up. Yep. You represent. Just a surprising amount of us. Yeah. And it was a very nice conversation, and we, sh- we shared a few laughs, but I, but I don't know you well. Uh, I'm just curious, your own life experience. Does it mirror both both Nizar and Ben's? Well, definitely closer to Ben's because obviously I'm insulated in that way of being a foreigner here. I've been here almost seven years as well, so this is personal to us too. Like we got a lot of Lebanese friends. Most of my colleagues are Lebanese, and you just hear their day to day. Like they can't afford their kids' tuition at schools anymore. Yeah, everything is just so difficult, and every day you wake up, you're like, "What well, can't possibly get worse?" And then it does. And this is kind of like the situation we're living in now. I can't see rock bottom, even though I've passed what any rational person would have considered rock bottom so many days, months ago. So it's just kind of like a every day you're getting sort of immune to it almost because just every day you just can't even believe what's happening and that nothing is being done about it. So It's a shared pessimism. And I think it would be very odd yeah. if any of us were speaking optimistically right now given what's been happening. Uh, but but there, is, there are reasons I wanted to speak to you. Um, and that's because I've had, I think up to now, close to 200 conversations with different people about all that's been happening. So I've, I think as somebody who's trying to understand it and also digest different views and maybe even different perspectives and different professions on all that's been happening... I don't know if I'm smarter today than I was when I started. But I do think that I, I have an appreciation for the wider picture now. And that's because I've just spoken to so many people that I wouldn't have otherwise. And I wanted to maybe just explore the podcast terrain with, with you and, and see if there's been any immediate could be benefit or, or for that matter, maybe not. Maybe that it's actually made things bleaker. I'm curious, the the work and then the relationship to Lebanon and how this kind of reporting or documenting or whatever it is, audio narrative, podcasting, if it, if it has benefited or maybe dampened your expectations further. Because I know that it's a shared experience, but when you're plugged in night and day, I think it becomes more intimate and it maybe has... Uh, it, it resonates in a different way, perhaps. And this is my own experience. But let, let me start with Nizar here. Just you're having now spent, and I think it's up to two years now that you started this podcast. Or in 2018, it, it was launched. So in the last two years, before the protests, during the protests, and today, has it contributed or, or maybe dampened your hopes for Lebanon? Um, I don't know about the relation to my hopes, but I... I have to tell you something that I'm not always plugged in. Like I, when I do the podcast, 
Um, the, the day before the podcast, I read the news of the week. Usually, I'm not following every day the major news because mm. I can't handle it personally. So, I'm not someone who watches the news on, on the eight, at 8 p.m. every day on TV. I don't read a lot of news about uh, Lebanon. I read news about other countries. Uh, but reading about Lebanon daily was very, very exhausting to me. So, I stopped a really long time ago. And what I do is basically I, I think of it as a challenge, as a homework I have to do. But because I'm listening all the time to people talking about these politics, because I'm politically involved as, as well in a political organization, so I have to know at least the important things. I have to know the general st status of like political economic dynamics and uh, the stances of the major forces in society and in politics. I have to know them, but I don't have to know all the details of the politics. And if you notice when we listen to the when you listen to the podcast uh, that Ben actually knows a lot more about the processes of government in Lebanon than I do, like about the laws and the committees and the government's meetings and the days before a new prime minister is there, etc. I can't follow these things. Like, thank God there is Ben because <laughs> otherwise the podcast would be a terrible a disaster. I cannot do this, you know. So what I what I do is I distance myself for most of the time. And uh, when I involve myself in all of the news, I do it for the sake of preparing the podcast. So what this did is actually it gave me a lot of satisfaction because I feel like I'm on top of things. I can do analysis, etc. At the same time, it didn't like completely exhaust me personally. So this is my relationship with it. But yeah. do you start pulling back from the from the grind? Let's say the sort of twenty four hour monitoring while the protests when the protests started, or was it earlier? It was a long time ago. Like it was, mm. uh, it was basically um, in university that I decided I was studying political science, and for a while I was like, okay, I need to know everything and watch the news and everything. And uh, at some point I was like, I can't do my activism because I was involved in a different form of activism. It wasn't really political organizing. Back then it was more like civil society uh, for for secularism and civil marriage and things like that. But anyway, it was. I felt like it was just too much. I can't have a good social life and. Uh, be be uh, involved in activism if I'm getting all of this negative energy. I know this is a bit, you know, weird to say as someone who is literally just like working in politics or, or doing all of this stuff, but still, I just feel like I have to have this distance. Um, so it was a long time ago, and even through the, the uprising time, um, I wasn't the guy who watches the news. I used to mm. receive the news and try to make sense of them, but I'm not the one who was following at all. I was, uh, you know, dedicating my energy to uh, to being the streets or to writing statements or to meetings, etc. But not really to uh, watching the news. I'll only say that you do your homework well because it shines during the podcast. So if, if you're crunching for your assignment, good job. I don't know if that's how you pulled off your university degree, but whoa, well done. Exactly. <laughs> well that's done. Exactly how I did it. <laughs> but, but it's nice to hear this sort of res mutual respect that you guys share among each other. And uh, and Ben, according to Nizar, the podcast would be a failure. And although I don't agree with that sentiment, I think, Nizar, you do a good job. But Ben, <laughs> since I know you as somebody who, who's been part of Lebanon for a while, is it over a decade now that you that when you arrived? Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, 2009. 2009. So, I mean, you've, you've dedicated your professional career, in a sense, to the Lebanese story. And I, I mean, it goes without saying, your, your work in the Daily Star... It was very important, and uh, I mean that's you're you're a journalist, so maybe uh, maybe it's it comes naturally, maybe this form of expression. And I'm, I'm just curious, did it did it happen to you that you had to sort of take a step back 
for your sanity? Uh, or, or are you literally like still sort of right in the middle and Twitter and all that stuff, the, the anxiety that comes with constant coverage? Uh, I, I'm definitely not quite as constantly covering things as I once was. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the Daily Star let me go, I definitely took a, a good period to, you know, sit back, yeah. relax, yeah. take a break. Uh, and, and, uh, and if I'm being honest, you know, today I probably don't cover, uh, you know, uh, pay attention to things yeah. quite as closely as I did when it was, you know, this is your job. This is what you have to do. It's uh, it's more of a a leisure or type or, or a fun uh, you know hobby type thing, um, and and I think this is sort of where w- one of the reasons why our podcast works mm. uh, because these things that Nizar doesn't like that uh, uh, you know he's very very good at and very adept at but doesn't want to you know spend day in and out and day out doing I. I'm more interested in doing that. I don't, you know, I don't feel the same way. Uh, but what, what I think he brings to the program is this sort of larger view that comes from stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. Mm. And so we, I, I, uh, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but there's, I, I think, been a, a division of labor uh, in our podcast quite a bit. Is a like, okay, I try to focus a bit more on the nuts and the bolts and Nizar tries to sort of put it all together in a way that makes sense. Right. Uh, and so we have like the first part of our podcast is more news heavy. And then we talk about, you know, some issue and go deeper into that. And that's, you know, where Nizar comes out and, and, and shines, you know, uh, I, 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 and I think without those two halves, you know, you, you don't have quite as interesting, uh, of, of a podcast and, or quite as, uh, quite a good of uh, quite as good of an explanation, I think, of what's going on. You know what I admire about your podcast as a fan is that it, it seems like it's a pleasure to both of you. That you seem like you really are into it. This is not a job. This yeah. is born out of out of curiosity and also, I think, a commitment to Lebanon. Maybe for different reasons and different sort of different coming from different backgrounds in that sense. But it's still there's a commitment there, and it's. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy it, and I can I hear it when you guys are sort of ex- exchanging ideas or even having a guest on. That, that that this is a pleasure, and I like you. Ben, you said hobby, but it's like I think that's an understatement because it's it's more that you're you're doing such a good job with it that I think it's a skill and it's a honed Thanks. skill. But of course, I would disagree with both of you. This podcast wouldn't be possible without Susan Wilson. That's why she's here. Absolutely, so, Susan. Why are <laughs> the you the reason? Hero. <laughs> why are you the source of power? And, and please, uh, ego big as big as you'd like. <laughs> Do our best. Um, podcast. I think it's been a learning curve for all of us because it kind of started off as this thing that we were just doing. It was Ben's baby. He wanted like better coverage of the elections in 2018, and we figured mm. our friends would listen, and that was it. But as soon as we started doing it, we had a couple hundred people, and we're like, okay, this is clearly filling a need, and we started like building on it, and we've really, yeah, I think we kind of grown into our roles. Like Ben's taking over Act One, like you said, Mazar's kind of the narrative man. He puts everything together. And we've learned a lot through it. We started off in the quote-unquote maids room of Ben's house with my little task cam to like what we're doing today. So there's definitely been like a, a learning curve, and I think we've gotten better and more adept at what we're doing over time. 
and that wouldn't work if we went into it because I mean this is something we do in our spare time because we all enjoy it. And Susan, for the most part. may I ask? Because I don't. I I mean, for for better or worse, I'm more or less a one man show. I don't have uh, anyone sort of on board. It's just for the most part, it's been me for the most part. What what is your role behind the scenes exactly when it comes to the production of the podcast? As somebody who's curious about the format and sort of there's many different ways of playing with it what is your i mean what are your tasks if i will i'm not trying to sort of sound make it sound like a job but just sort of without you what would the podcast sound like what would it be like it would be a lot longer oh <laughs> there, That's there great. would be a lot more startings and stops definitely so you're you're the you're the needed filter if that's uh, if that's the right word here. Oh, and now she's gone. <laughs> that's that's yeah, she, she, oh, she, she makes is. all of us sound way better than than we do normally. I see. So it's a matter of quality and editing and filtering and sort of the yeah. making it sort we of kind of talk for like an hour, sometimes an hour and 20, if they particularly hate me that day. And then I turn it into 45 minutes. Oh, okay. So you found you found a sweet spot in that sense, that there's a, a limit to the audience's yeah. patience per se, that, that 45 minutes. I like to take my patience levels and imagine they're the ah, audiences. Ah, this right. is how I do it normally. Let me ask, do you guys, I mean, and COVID aside, before COVID, did you guys all meet every weekend and do this together so, yeah. so th- there is a, a shared experience and it's a personal one too that you're actually doing this in the same room at once i i like that it's like a team a proper team effort yeah and uh, before so, i got my stomach ulcer we used to have beers as well while recording it was really fun <laughs> used to have sorry deals beers, beers. oh beer <laughs> <laughs> Like, it was a fun session, more or less, you know, like, even when guests are there, just like uh, sitting in my very humble room that we call our studio, and, you know, sometimes, like, big shots come to the podcast, and they're like, oh, where's the studio? And I'm like, in this Zarube in Marlies, uh, and you see Alam Harakat Amal, and you go right, and then <laughs> it's my room. <laughs> like, funny. I tell them things, you know, step by step. And then they get to my room and they see all these towels for sound, uh, for yeah. sa- for echo proofing, etc. Like it's a very humble setting, but it's just fun. It's casual. Is that still the the same room that you record in every every weekend? You know, I I, I ask because but now we're hmm. we're recording remotely because of COVID nineteen. Of course, of course. But I, I mean, the reason I'm curious is because yeah, these are the things that you sort of de- you learn on the job. That that soundproofing, the sort of the echo chamber, and and all of the above. Yep. Yeah. And I, I like sort of learning and sort of hearing other people's experiences. This is more out of personal curiosity. But let's, we'll, we'll dance around the podcast terrain. But I'm now curious about, in a way, your reflections. And it's it comes out during your conversations. It comes out more at the beginning, I think, than with the guests. But sometimes it comes out with the guests, too, where you guys stand. And I know that's not that that would be unfair for me to just sort of say, what do you think about this and that? And I don't think that's that's maybe a healthy way of even asking, you know, but I, I want reflections on, on maybe a few points. And it's it's more on the I think the common understanding of what happened to the country, what's happening now and perhaps where it's moving. I want to start with maybe the, the hardest question, whether or not the euphoria that we saw 
the first few days of the protest movement. I mean, I'm talking really, it could be 17th, 18th, 19th, and the 20th of October. That sort of outburst of emotion that we all saw, we all witnessed. Do you think in July we're so far removed from that moment that we're now dealing with a completely different beast altogether? Or do you think the same, the same motivation, maybe even the, the same persuasion that you saw people protesting their demands, demands that were left unmet, do you think that's still the core of where we are right now? Now, I'm keeping this vague intentionally because I'm curious whether or not whether or not it's a sustainable uprising and whether or not there's still room for hope and whether or not it's too late. And I, without sounding hopeful or, or pessimistic, just sort of the, the, the narrative arc, if you will. Ben, ben, maybe I can start with you and then go to Nizar and Susan. I mean, it's hard to, I think, break it down simply like that. I, I mean, certainly the the crowds are gone. The euphoria that we saw is gone. All of that is 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 gone. It may come back, but we don't know that for sure, right? Um, as to the deeper issues, the things that caused all of these, clearly those causes are all still there, and actually, in fact, exacerbated by the events uh, that have happened between October seventeenth and today. Uh, so, I. I, I, I think that the other shoe still has yet to drop on this. I, 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 I agree that, yeah, that the, the protests were what they were, and they've definitely died out as they were, but there will be more protests. There will be more action to come, and I have no idea what that's going to look like, though. I have mm. no idea if that's going to be the same kind of let's have a dance party in downtown thing or probably something very different. So it's too soon in that sense to, to have that kind of perspective on, on where things are moving. That's still too fresh. I, well, I mean, yes and no, because it definitely is going to come back, right? Mm-hmm. There's, people are going to reach a new breaking point because as of right now, policymakers aren't doing anything to avoid that. They're steering the ship directly over the waterfall, it seems right now. Right. Um, but I, I do question just, though, what the popular response to this will be, whether it really will look like what happened, you know, in the days, you know, the first couple of weeks in October there. Right. Or, or whether it will be something very different. It may look more like the first couple of days, the 17th and 18th of October, not like the 19th or 20th or beyond. Meaning the escalation may take hold, that sort of the initial sort of uh, outburst, that the, the scenes of the, yeah. the, first, first, the first night, if you will, next to the Sada yeah. and Riyadh Salah. Nizar, right, right. do you share that sentiment as well, that, that maybe the, this is just the beginning of something much larger and we haven't seen it yet? Or, or is it, is, do you have a different take on uh, maybe just that perspective on whether or not it's still where, where we left off, if you will? It's really difficult to tell. I think, okay, I tell you my perspective in general on the uprising. I think it's um, it was definitely a stage in a longer revolutionary process. Um, so it's it's uh, to me there's no question that there, there is going to be another manifestation of this revolutionary energy, be it in the same kind of uprising, a similar uprising, or be it in 
uh, a more violent form or uh, an electoral form or I don't know, like yeah. a lot of ways that can be manifested. It's definitely going to be manifested and it's being manifested in so many ways. Um, and and one of the things that happened is that the concept of activism and civil society and basically rebellion was exp has exploded and was like dispersed all over society more or less. So there you have, you know, rebels all over Lebanon using this word to describe themselves. You have communities and grassroots movements being created um, in the different parts of the country in clear opposition to the dominant forces there. These things don't go away. Yeah. There is a culture of, like, we are uh, revolutionaries, that is, exists now, and that people people now identify as thawar instead of, you know, awni or Allah or, you know, like, people identify as thawar in terms of their political affiliation now, some a lot of people, and this is something very new as well. These things won't go away. But to expect another uprising like the same one, I think I think it's it's a bit uh, too optimistic, for many reasons. One, uh, most of the reasons, in my opinion, are related to how things naturally happen with uprisings. Uh, I think when uprisings happen, um, what comes next is not only uprisings, even protest movements, like you know, the one we have in two, we had in 2015 and 2011. What happens after these movements is that things get filtered down, like groups get filtered by where they stand on the different issues. It's not anymore like, oh, we all agree on the revolution's demands. It's like, oh, this this group is actually part of the revolution, but it's also pro-Syrian regime, or it's too appeasing towards Hezbollah, or it's too uh, uh, um, tolerant to uh, the Lebanese forces' rhetoric and their protests, or whatever, and you start getting all these filters. Are people progressive for real? Are they progressive on the social level? when it comes to refugees, migrant workers, uh, gender issues, uh, sexual minor and, and like LGBTQ issues, are they really progressive or are they just like pro-Thawra for other reasons related to, you know, their socioeconomic status? And then you get, you start, you know, all this filtering process means that people uh, are not so unified anymore, which is not a very, very bad thing because you need this, filter, this filtering to happen. Otherwise, there's no evolution of the collective mind, if you wish. Uh, mm -hmm. if there's no evolution of civil society. There's no development of civil society in the general sense, including political movements and parties. If this filtering doesn't happen, but this filtering also means that the capacity to be under the one umbrella, the ability to be under one umbrella, everyone, is quite weak. It's it's quite it's less likely than it was at the moment of the uprising. So I think this is one of the main reasons why um, it's very difficult to have the same uh, uh, because all of these groups also and all of these influences, if you wish, all activists, organizers, they influence people around them, and you start getting these opinion blocks, right? Is it Riyadh Salem's fault? No, it's everyone's fault. What a great division. But it exists, right? It's You see it and you hear it. Um, and, and all of these like lines that start being created. These lines mean that people have to be and have to have such a common factor for them to, in, like, in one moment, to come back together as one entity called the Thawra. And I think this factor is not there yet. And it's not related to how much they torture us slowly, the politicians and then the oligarchs in Lebanon. It's not like, oh, they're making us poorer, therefore we will revolt. I think it's a much more complex thing, like a, a recipe that is very, very difficult, and um, I don't see it yet, like, manifesto. You know, Nizar, uh, you, you remind me of a recent conversation I had with Nasser Yassin, the interim director of, uh, of IFI, Isam Ferris in AUB, and he talked about his, his dismay 
that there hasn't been political organization, the way that it would translate to authority and, and political power, that he sort of saw the, the desperate need for some organization. And I'm getting from you that maybe this has already started, but it's just not at the level that you would have hoped for. Or maybe that the, the squabbling is superseding the actual needed momentum that maybe would have naturally come from any uprising. Did, did I get that right? That, that the organizational structure is, is there and not there, but it's not the way you would need it to translate to change. Yeah, the problem, Ronnie, with this perspective is that we assume sometimes that when um, there is a political organization that looks very serious and brings together a lot of people, mostly elites, mostly people who are highly educated, who are political activists and identify as so, etc., when this happens, therefore, you know, social change happens. And I don't believe so. Like, mm -hmm. I believe if you have the best party in Lebanon, but it's elitist, it's a failure. In Lebanon, the real battle happens at the grassroots level and everywhere in the world, I believe, but mostly in Lebanon, because the particularities of every uh, of every geographical area, of every community, uh, including the sectarian aspect, because even if we are secular people, we have to acknowledge that sectarianism exists and has its own dynamics. And the reasons why people follow Jumblat are different from Nasrallah, are different from uh, from Birri and, and Hariri, etc. And every area, every community has its uh, has its like dynamics. So um, what I believe is that what is needed today is the largest grassroots organizing we can have. We can have, and it's not like the best political rhetoric. To tell you, to tell you the truth, I don't think that if you have, uh, if you check all the boxes, like best position on Syrian regime, on Hezbollah, but also on economics and on social affairs, then you get the best party. Otherwise, I would name you a few people who would be like amazing political leaders, but they have no, they have no political organizations that support them. What we really need is to be on the grassroots level and to be closer to people and to have a strong narrative. Even if people don't agree with us, even if we are, you know, if I if I have just a minute to tell you, like, when, I'm when just things going to happen, I'm just going to interrupt you before. I, now I know how your podcast works. Ben sets the stage. Nizar speaks his <laughs> mind. Susan just waits for both to stop so she can edit accordingly. It's happening in front of me, so it's quite that nice. Is, I, <laughs> To be to be fair to Susan, though she also is very very good about content and <laughs> stops us when we go too far. So like you can't say that, uh, or wait, did you just say that? Uh, she's very very good with that. Susan saves us from ourselves. Can you, when needed, can you cut? <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Nizar. It was it was too oh, it was too appropriate. <laughs> but no, but please please explain. I get it. Um, yeah, so I was, <clears throat> I was saying that just an anecdote. When we were um, at some point, in, uh, when Hassan Diab's government announced its uh, inauguration speech, or Bayan Luizari, right? They, um, uh, the political group that I'm part of, Lehaqiwi, prepared an alternative Bayan Luizari, and we were going around the areas talking about this. It was a transitional program for economic and social and political change, right? It was basically policies and laws and decrees. It was not like general headline. And we were talking, we went over 10 different areas, across 10 different areas, uh, Tripoli, Sur, Baalbek, etc., like all across Lebanon, more or less. And um, and I noticed that, you know, people don't agree with you on, on everything, right? When people ask me, are you pro-gay uh, rights? I say yes. And they might be um, against those rights, or they might have problems with how we see uh, gender issues or whatever. But you know what? They, it's not really the, mo the thing that determines whether people um, 
support your movement or not, whether people get involved or not. I think when you have a solid rhetoric, um, you can bring people from different points sometimes, and people change their minds when they start getting organized and they start having debates with their comrades, etc. So what I feel is that having the perfect rhetoric doesn't get you anywhere. What you need is to have a grassroots organization that is really solid on the ground, to have a strong narrative about, soci about social change, but about what's happening today and why it's happening, to, to have like an analysis of the situation that makes sense to people, right? Uh, and... and a clear vision to how you want to transform society. You don't have to have the ideal utopia in your rhetoric at all, and you don't have to be ideological. You just have to say, I w we want to transform society in, in this direction. Do you agree or not? And if you, I don't know if you follow American politics. I, I follow American politics probably more than Lebanese politics. And I saw, what I saw, for example, in Bernie Sanders' movement is this, right? You got people who are pro-gun rights and people who are against gun rights, uh, or more like pro-gun safety, and suddenly they're part of the same movement, more or less, because the strong narrative about economic justice against the oligarchy for progressive reform, etc., it's there. So this is what I believe. It should be grassroots and should be, um, it should not compromise. At the same time, it should know what is the central narrative that people would get behind and would be motivated by. But that, that emphasis on the grassroots level and that sort of appreciation for a new social pact, I think that's what I'm getting from you, that's sort of like a turning the page of the old order, I'm assuming is one of, it takes years and years of work, that there's no short-term answer, at least when it comes to the ambitions that you're, you're describing, that sort of a, a new Lebanon that hasn't existed in its recent history, or maybe it never existed, that kind of turning the page from late Ottoman Empire from independence, from post-Syria, from, from the Civil War, all of that stuff into something brand new. So in, in a way, it's almost like a generational achievement, if, if that's even possible. And I, you know, I appreciate that long view, because that means really that nine months or eight months or whatever it's been since October, it's just starting, that sort of it's just begun. But Susan, do you have that kind of shared perspective? That this is one for the long haul? And that, and that also there's that maybe the, the beginnings of what should be a grassroots-like movement that hasn't really taken hold yet. I'm just curious if maybe you can echo Ben and, and Nizar's perspectives. And if, if you see any uh, disagreement. I can't do, just defer to Nizar on these points because he's obviously got a lot more skin in the game than I do. Um, but definitely I don't think change ever happens overnight. I think that's like a very... People want things to happen quickly, but to happen well, it has to happen slow. And from what I'm seeing on the ground right now, I agree with Ben and Nazar, like, it's obviously changed. It has to change because the day-to-day -day reality of people's lives is just so different from what it was in October. October, there was the stirrings of what was to come, and now we're living through this thing that is impacting people. Like, you're going to a shop every day, and the prices are rising every day. Like, this is something I don't think a lot of people here have ever lived through, even during the war. Like, there wasn't this kind of currency crisis that people are going through. It's more immediate, and people are obviously focusing on themselves more than the collective now because you have to. It's a day-to-day -day survival thing for a lot of people in this country. But I think when Nazar is saying, like, based on the experience of, like, watching the election in 2015 and based on the experience of seeing how he's working with Lahaki, like... It does seem to be working when it goes to the grassroots level, like the achievements they made in Shuf. It needs to kind of like break down at the local level for it to be changed, from what I've seen. Let me ask a question to all three. Anyone can interject here. The 
do you think that the current economic crisis, the escalation, the, the hyperinflation, oh, there goes Nizar's electricity. Oh. That, yeah. oh. No, but that was, <laughs> for a moment, uh, we had... Uh, I hope we don't lose internet. Ah. You're still here. I'm still here. You're still okay, here. Okay, great. great. <laughs> you turned into Robo Nizar for one second. <laughs> <laughs> it goes well with the blue eyes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can still hear me, yeah? I'm still... Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. The, um, um, anyone can interject. The, do you think that where we are right now, this level of pain, the personal pain and the shared pain of extreme sort of circumstance? That was me. It's perfect. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love this. So this is like, this is how you know that it's a Lebanese politics <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're the real deal. This is, no, this is no joke. <laughs> yeah. And you guys come prepared with your APS, UPS, whatever the battery yep. is available. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. The, where we are right now, do you think it has the potential to derail that kind of project, that long-term grassroots project that is sort of maybe kicked off but hasn't sort of – it's not standing on its own two legs yet. And there goes Ben. This is hilarious. I am still here. Are you still here? Oh, beautiful. <laughs> we can't see you, Ben. Can, can you hear me? Yeah. We can yeah. hear you. still hear you. Okay. All right. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I'm keeping this in, yeah, because this is authentic. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Perfect. Is there a fear of that, that it may have negative consequences in the long term, that we may see a, a, like a reluctance to get involved in that project now, given that there is this current financial mess? A anyone can add to this. I would say it would be the opposite. Like in the short term, people need to focus on like what is happening right now. So maybe there, there is a reluctance to kind of like deal with the bigger issue because you're facing your day-to-day -day reality. Mm. But in the long term, the longer this goes on, the worse it gets. It actually gets to the point where there has to be change. So that's where you start moving in a political direction because it's clear to everyone we've reached the end of this system. The system no longer works for anyone. Mm. And that's when you have the opportunity to change things. But I appreciate there's a, almost like a glimmer of hope in that sense, that because things are at where they are right now, that it will maybe push things forward. In a, in a better mm. direction. I'm going to take the conversation to a slightly different train, but it, it, it relates. We're all young to a point. I mean, I don't think any of us hit 40 yet, I assume. Maybe, Ben, I don't I, you You're past 40. Almost. Not Almost? there yet. What are you, 39? I'll, I turned 39 this year. Yeah. Mabruk, Anna Kamen. I turned 39 just a month ago. So we're, all right. we're at the tail end of youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the gray hair. Mazar's got a few good years left. Yep. <laughs> the good news is, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. We're young enough to still have, I think, uh, clear enough vision to look to the future without worrying about the past. And what I mean that is in a more Lebanese context, that I have memories of the Civil War, but they don't prevent me from wanting something better. So that in that sense, although although I think the older generations maybe, maybe for the most part, want something better, but remember the Civil War too vividly, that there's a reluctance to push too far. 
the younger generation, and I'll include sort of everyone born after Anna Ben, let's say this includes Nizad and everyone we know that's <laughs> younger, Susan, that the less Civil War memory, the better. That you can push further and you can be reckless in a, in a good way, not in a bad way. Meaning that, so what if it's a sectarian society? You know, so what if the same crowd is still governing from the war years? So what? You know, move on. So th- there's the, the appreciation for the youth component. At the same time, regardless of the generation, and let's say regardless of the focus, whether it's blaming certain individuals, and these are, you kind of echoed there, whether it's Riyadh Salemi or the whole thing, blaming the political process, blaming the crony capitalism, blaming geopolitics, you name it. Do you guys think at this point there's some clarity as to what might be the ultimate stumbling block in terms of Lebanon navigating its own path and turning into a functioning state? And I'm saying this in the broadest way because I don't really want to get sort of bogged down in particular details among certain players and certain parties or even certain chapters in history. But the, the whole thing, why Lebanon in 2020 is simply ungovernable, or at least it's ungovernable not because the popular will wants it to be better, but the fact is Lebanon is a mismanaged state. A hundred years after its borders were drawn. So I'm, I'm curious about maybe the, the, wi- the widest angle. Do you see a, an ultimate block, an ultimate wall, let's say, where Lebanese protesters over time cannot sort of climb over, they climb back down. And it's a big question, I know, but I, I'm just curious about your own feelings towards that, that question. Ben, Ben, let me start with you. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, that is a big question, but uh, I, I think what we're seeing right now is if you want revolution, if you're, if you're one of these people who says the sultan has to go, revolution now, we, we, need, we need better rulers, we, we need to change the entire way things are done. Um, well, that's, that's a, very, a fairly obvious observation, I think, at this point. But who are these people that you're trying to overturn? These people are the Zoma. These people are the warlords. These people are the people who actually perpetrated the civil war in some cases. And so... Going back to what you were talking about, generational things, and and maybe an older generation that lived through a civil war uh, that maybe learned a lot during that civil war, the generation that's coming up today that says we've got to change things does really need to listen to that voice Mm. of the people who lived through the last major confrontation Mm. involving these warlords and... uh, uh, and, and community leaders. Uh, in that case, there was a failure all around. I mean, it wasn't a, a revolution like today, but it was, there was, nobody won, really. Uh, you know, you, you can say some people made it out better than others during the Civil War, but nobody won the Civil War. Uh, and the people who were in power before were the same ones, largely, who were still in power afterwards. And now you're, and now this younger generation, there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, there was a collective amnesia about what happened during the Civil War. Yeah. And 
this has never been fully accounted for. This, the, I think the, the lessons of that time, uh, uh, many of them were taken to heart, I think, but a lot of them were just, well, we need to not talk about that. We, we need to not deal with that. And that's caused a problem here because you have a new generation that's actually trying to take on these powers. They need to know the full, the full scale, the full depth of, of what has gone before. Um, and so I think it's very, very important that the, the, the current generation takes a very long historical view and, and, and realizes, uh, you know, I'll, let, well, let me put it this way. I, I think it's important that uh, these things, these, these issues that were brought up during the Civil War, that they actually need to get resolved, I think, fundamentally, in order to have any sort of real, lasting, sustainable progress. You've got to deal with sort of the sins of the past before you can move on. And this, uh, this happens in, in a number of ways, but I think the way it really meets the road is that the people who are trying to affect change now need to be very cognizant of what happened before and where, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what, you know, what, which way is the better way to go today in order to avoid these horrible things that happened the last time that there was uh, a, a real sort of upheaval in society. I appreciate this focus on, because it's almost like the unanswered, uh, the unanswered, the unanswered questions about how Lebanon fell apart and why it wasn't, why it was such a painful chapter, and they're sort of like swept under the rug. And I, I like that. It's almost an, a reflection on why that older generation is so reluctant at times, maybe getting to the, the root causes. So I like that. And I also like something that in endless conversations about similar terrain, you didn't mention confessional power sharing you didn't mention the sectarian system you actually focused in on something maybe more maybe more uh, present in the minds of those that lived through the civil war so i appreciate that yeah. angle nizar is that something you share as well or, or does it come back to the structure itself in your mind that it's really just an issue of the way lebanon it was put together and that we never sort of handled it properly we didn't sort of turn it into something more manageable Wow, really, Ronnie, your uh, your questions are amazing, but like so difficult. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> let me try to to divide that. There's a question of of uh, of generation difference that I I think exists, but what I saw is that you know older folks are are just um, they get as excited when uh, the circumstances look very hopeful, like mm. in the moment of the uprising. Um, all the older generation got really excited and really proud and they were like uh, participating yeah. in larger numbers etc which means that they are not cynical right Right. Mm -hmm. but they are traumatized um, we are traumatized as well by the way and we shouldn't we should never underestimate that we've been uh, repressed so many times protesting I've been uh, two or three glasses that were destroyed by security forces been tortured a couple of times in one way or another uh, been you know tear gassed so many times we saw a lot of defeats 
We saw the defeat of 2005 being turned into the ugliest system ever. The, the uprising of 2005 against the Syrian regime being turned into a bunch of oligarchs ruling and oppressing us. We saw 2011 failing Lebanon while it kind of succeeded more or less in other countries. We saw in 2013 and 14 the parliament and 16 and etc. the parliament extending its mandate saying, you know, um, screw all of you, we're not going to respect whatever democratic principle you're so attached to, we're just going to uh, create our own uh, little authoritarian confessional power sharing thing. We've, we've been to a lot, through a lot of defeats. We had 2015, the big protest movement, it looked like an uprising, and then eventually literally nothing happened, literally nothing changed after 2015, and it was so many defeats, right? We are a generation that is revolting against defeatism. This is, I think, uh, the, at the bottom of it, this is what we're mm. revolting against. Mm. And this is why a lot of young folks, when they're talking to their parents and their uncles and their aunts, etc., they get a lot of... They get emotional, they get angry, they say, you know, shut up and listen to us now, because we are, it's our turn, we are trying, etc. So this exists, this whole generation thing exists, um, but both generations have been, are to a certain extent cynical, they are traumatized to a certain extent, and they know that things are, the structures of, of power in Lebanon are extremely difficult to, to, uh, to defeat and to change. Uh, but I think both of them, at the moment of uprising and euphoria, they come together and they are as revolutionary. And probably sometimes young kids get uh, get uh, tired, and the older folks are telling them, "Don't get tired yet, because it's a long way." And uh, and they know that you know things don't happen immediately because they've been through much longer and much more th events. And they can they I've been I've listened to these conversations many times during the uprising. You know, young comrades saying, you know. Uh, I'm too tired, nothing's going to change. And then older people saying, in our political organization, for instance, older people saying, um, no, you have to have patience. Uh, political change doesn't happen overnight, etc. So there is uh, something that, there is a sort of wisdom from historical continuity that the older people usually bring. Um, there is this understanding that, uh, that uh, change is a historical process and it takes time. And there are some lessons from the past, but I think that no one, no one really learned anything in Lebanon from the civil war in a real way, because the left turned into liberals who don't stand for anything, let's be honest. The, the people who are uh, part of, you know, the uh, Jumblat and Birri and these people, they, they, they won, they won, right? They turned into like the mafioso that run the state and they can do whatever they want with the state. And this is what we, uh, and Basile now joined them as exactly the same model and it works, right? These people, like Hezbollah learned its own lessons and now it's, it's, it knows very well that if it doesn't control the state to an extent or another, it's not going to be able to protect itself and to advance its agenda. And really, who learned the lessons that uh, are needed for the way forward? Today, when we are talking about class differences and economic systems that don't work, we've got older comrades from uh, who left the Communist Party 15, 20 years ago telling us, no, no, forget all of this Marxist and class uh, bullshit. What you really need to focus on is democracy and the rule of law and uh, secularism or the civil state. The rhetoric that is empty of anal analysis and also empty of any, any, any excitement. Uh, like, I'm telling you, what I'm trying to say is the civil war has, ha like, was full of lessons, but everyone who uh, was on our side, more or less, 
uh, in terms of wanting better, uh, better, uh, like the improvement of society, more social justice, uh, etc., more rights to people, was defeated. And those who won are the mafias, are the militias, and they are still practicing the same mode of politics today. Because what you see today, the counter-revolution that happened after the October uprising in Lebanon is literally just a re-manifestation, a reenactment of the civil war. It's the same thing. It's basically trying to say, no, you are not all in the same pool, all everyone at the bottom against everyone at the top. It's not true because you are divided according to uh, whether you support 1559 or not, or uh, you are divided over whether Yad Salemi is the, the, is the biggest problem or someone else, etc. And they start creating all of these lines. This is counter-revolution. Right? This is exactly what they've been trying to do because the state still works the same way as if there is a peaceful civil war happening, right? This distribution of resources and how it happens, it's literally a bunch of militias coordinating with each other, even those who don't have the, the militias or the actual weapons. So the system is a system of war, and people trying to build peace have to go through a conflict. And when they go through this conflict, this revolutionary conflict, they are warned that they might get to the, the country to a point of war again. So this is a whole, like, big paradox where, you know, those who are fighting for peace are being accused of causing war and eventually. And I think this is one of the biggest, like, uh, uh, ch the biggest chains that uh, we are, uh, that are around us today, you know, this feel that, fe feeling guilty for inciting conflict that is very necessary and very real today. What you just did, I think, is explain why Lebanon remains in its civil war state in probably the most detailed, eloquent way I've ever heard. You pointed at every every attempt at trying to let go of those years and turn it into something better. And there's chapters to it, and it's clear 2019 is not the first time. And it's also that it remains the ultimate stumbling block. And it, I, I appreciate that because it's almost like, um, yeah, we're still living in April 1975. And, and you said it's the peaceful version of that story, meaning that there's no bullets flying across streets or it's not, the city is not, the city, there's no green line that, kept, that keeps people sort of separated that way. But it is the same method of governance, if you will. The authorities remains one of civil war. I appreciate that. And I, I like that it kind of takes what Ben said earlier, and, but almost um, turns it into a half a century of storytelling. You should turn that into something, because that, that, I think it, it, it focuses in on one thing and sort of shows that it's a rep repetitive trait in modern Lebanon. So, Susan, do you have that kind of sentiment as well, that, that it's the civil war that remains that sort of ultimate hurdle? Or, or do you see it differently? Because I also like what you said, Nizad, earlier. You, um, I don't want to say you dismissed outright, but you sort of shelved the screaming and shouting for secularism and civil state. I think that's what you said, that this is not really the, you can't get there unless you address bigger issues first. I, I think I got that right. That it's sort of empty rhetoric is what you said. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, even yeah, though it's, it's, more or less. it might be correct, but it's empty given the circumstances. But Susan, do you have that sort of relationship to maybe the ambitions and, and why things remain stalled? I think looking at it, Obviously, I don't have the kind of long view of Lazar, but you need long hair. Like you need long curly hair and, and a goatee and a beard to have that kind of uh, banter. <laughs> this is why he's on the podcast and I'm not. In a nutshell, that entire last five minutes. <laughs> but um, for me, I think 
being a reporter here can get very like disheartening because it's the same stories. And I watched Jessica O'Brien on your podcast, who is a friend of mine. She's been on our show. She's written for the magazine I work for. And you guys were laughing at the fact that you'd you'd found this article and you thought it was recent. Right. But it turned out to be from a year ago. And she was saying, oh, yeah, because I write the same thing every single time. More, more. It was even, I think it was two years ago. Or even, even yeah. yeah, it was outdated, but it could have been written today. Exactly. And yeah. I think this is what you see when you when you write about Levy's politics is everybody knows what's wrong. Yeah. Everybody sort of knows the solutions, but nothing ever changes. So there's just kind of like this weird merry-go-round of they're seeing the same op-eds, the same opinions, the same comments, the same analysis over and over again. And then in real life, nothing ever changes. And for me, like, coming from, like, not as a Lebanese perspective, but, like, I think this is something that happens world over that people don't realize is that all these things, it's not just one big glorious battle and then it's all changed for the better. And it has to be continuous fighting because even the gains that are made can go away again. And you're seeing that in Lebanon, like, there were gains on, like, freedom of speech and things like this, and in recent years, people started to go back on that. It's always this cyclical thing of you have to, like, keep fighting for what you want because it can be turned around by the next person that comes after you. So I think, for me, this is what I kind of see it as, is like Lebanon almost feels like it's been frozen in these kind of like, what Ben and Azar were saying, these kind of like, uh, where people were at that time, but it's never really changed. So there has to be a moment of pushing through that, but even when you get past that, it's still going to be this long journey, you still have to keep fighting for every single point after that. I'm really glad you brought up freedom of expression, and I, I wanted to sort of address this issue with you guys. I won't keep you too much longer. I know that I've already taken more than an hour. So, and I can see everyone sweating. <laughs> I feel bad. <laughs> turn on the fans. Turn on the AC, please. I'll, I'll muffle that stuff. Please don't die because of this. You're very generous. We're used to it. We're used to we're used okay. to recording in, in hot, heat. sweaty conditions. You're, you guys are you're all being very nice to me. So, so thank you for that. The the. The, the issue which comes up, unfortunately it comes up, and it's a terrible thing. I remember 2005 when the, it felt, despite it being attacked, despite it at times being killed, freedom of expression, the, the power of journalism, this is pre-social media, this is pre-audio format exchanging ideas, this is just sort of articles written in certain newspapers and certain journalists getting assassinated. Despite that, there was still optimism for the written word, for the power of persuasion in peaceful ways, that the pen was mightier than the sword. And I, I mean, I remember this from the streets of Beirut. I remember this being uh, the thing that Lebanon was holding on to against all odds. 2020, even earlier, the last maybe the last two years, last three years, you see it sort of returning, that beast that we lived through, we lived through really during the Syrian occupation years, and it sort of manifested itself in uh, intimidation and arrests and at times murder. There is intimidation once again. Not at the level of the early 2000s. It's not Mukhabarat style people showing up at night and taking you with them, or it's not, it's not at the level that we emerged from in, in 2005. But it's, it, it feels like something is wrong. And then it happens really out of nowhere. Social media becomes a weapon. 
I don't think it's an intended weapon. It's just somebody screaming and shouting on Instagram, venting their frustrations, and then they get called in. Uh, journalists, I think we know some of these people, get called in. Um, and they get called in and they get intimidated. And that's not the Lebanon that we fought for. Do you worry about this issue today? That it's a slippery slope that is slipping in the wrong direction and that we're ultimately going to return to an era of intimidation and real intimidation. The way that maybe even these kinds of exchanges are being listened in on and, and things that we take for granted. And I, I mean, Niza, you probably have this kind of experience. We couldn't use certain words in the early 2000s without really worrying. And this includes basic words that we throw out today. I mean, the word Syria, Surya, we'd have to think twice before saying the name of a country. Assad, you'd think 10 times. Um, I mean, do, do you sense that there's this kind of returning, maybe, that if we say the president's name, Michel Aoun, or if we say Hassan Nasrallah too loud in certain quarters, or if we say any name, and you mentioned earlier, Ben, Jamil Sayed, that kind of we, there, there's a there's a bit of a you feel it right. This kind of you you get nervous just by saying a name. Do you sense that we're we're returning to that era, or are we beyond that? That that, that even if we are in that direction, the will, if you will, the popular will is not going to let it go in that direction. That it'll it'll be stopped and it'll be contained, and we'll have this luxury that I think all of us cherish, which is that. Lebanon is still a beacon in that sense for free expression against the odds. Nizar, let me start with you and then we can ask Ben and, and Susan. Okay, what I think about this topic is that... Um, uh, only, only, only 30 that minutes, Nizar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. I'm joking. I'm <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I will be brief on this one. I'm not like the. the 20, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, what I think about this thing is that freedom of expression is a variable that depends on um, political consensus and political conflict among the oligarchs. Right. The, if the po political forces in Lebanon have. Um, common interests and they are on the same page politically, or one of them is just completely dominant over the others, then you don't get freedom of expression. If they need freedom of expression themselves in order for them to write their articles and for them to have their media uh, advancing their own propaganda, and for them to have the space to insult Nasrallah and Jamil Said and, uh, and uh, Bashar al-Assad, etc., then it's a completely different story because they can't risk um, a, a real... Uh, police state today, they can risk a level of it, which is, they can actually, they benefit from a level of it, which is basically um, trying to um, calm people, or not people, not calm, oppress people in order for another, for a, basically mostly an economic agenda to pass. This is what I believe is this most central one today. So what today they have interest in, um, almost everyone, right, from the major political forces, is that the resistance to neo further neoliberal agenda in Lebanon or further neo neoliberal transformation is silenced, right? People are going to be kicked out of the public sector. They, we can't risk having the resistance that we will have when, you know, half of the or third of the private sector is, is, is under threat of being sacked because of the need to, for austerity or an IMF deal or any other reason. Anything that you can think of in terms of official devaluation, 
will be hurtful to a lot of people who are being paying back their loans uh, in terms of wages being so stagnant and not being updated, which is such a reality in Lebanon in a staggering way. All of these things would, will, that will happen, uh, the neoliberal policies that we expect to be implemented in Lebanon, they will bring in resistance, and this, is, this resistance has to be silenced, which is why we have Hamad Fehmi as interior minister, uh, security advisor to Blombank, you know, makes total sense to me. Like, uh, it's it's like, it's something of a, of a symbolism, but it's the perfect symbolism, because this is exactly what they need. And anyway, uh, this is just um, a reflection on what needs, what kind of level of freedom of expression they can handle today. And I think this level is, uh, they can handle as much political propaganda as we can do. They don't mind that, as, mu as long as we don't um, create and incite class conflicts that over dominate that dominate over their own conflicts that they are instigating and that they are advancing through their own propaganda. This is, I think, the most sensitive thing and the most threatening thing for the uh, ruling class in Lebanon. Apart from anything empowering refugees or you know a uh, 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 strong feminist movement, these are the other things that uh, threaten the structure, in my opinion. But the most important one today, uh, in terms of, um, uh, from their perspective, is class divisions being incited because they are real and they should, uh, you know, class ex uh, discrepancies are so, um, so extreme. So they are very, very, they're not as represented in discourse as they can be, and they should be, in my opinion. And this is one of the main things. But what my, pain, my main point, my big point is, to come back to pre-2005, you would need either Hezbollah to play the role of the Syrian regime or another force to do that. And no one in Lebanon is able to do that today, and no one has interest in doing that. Hmm. So let's not be afraid of going back to pre-2005, as long as there is political conflict between the major political forces in Lebanon, as long as there's something called March 8 and March 14, even if it's so loose and so vague sometimes, there is something called Syrian regime, Axis and Iran versus Saudi Arabia and the United States, there is freedom of expression to a certain extent in Lebanon. This is the only silver lining to this ridiculous division that uh, eclipses all other uh, conflicts of interest that are real, you know. This is the only silver lining in this division of March 8, March 14, is that we actually can say, you know, um, whatever we want about Syria and about uh, Saudi Arabia, more or less, and their representatives in Lebanon. I've never heard the economics angle uh, and the freedom of speech story tied together that way. So it's really interesting that, and I know that you also mentioned, of course, the geopolitical story that gives unintended breathing space at times, which I, I agree. Up to a point, though, up to a point, it doesn't necessarily guarantee somebody that they can say whatever they want, but it does offer a rift, and in that rift, you can sort of have competing ideas to a, to a point. But the economics angle is, is curious. I, I never heard that before. So you see that as sort of like survivability, and economic survivability of the ruling elite, for better or worse, will allow some competitive ideas flourishing on the street that it doesn't it doesn't hamper. It actually allows that space, which is which is interesting. I've never heard that before. Actually, what I was trying to say is that um, they there is an interest for their economic survivability and therefore their political survival. Uh, there is an interest in suppressing any real resistance, but there is, uh, but they cannot go as far as 
literally forbidding people from speaking up because with the economic situation, the determination of the livelihood that exists today um, and extreme oppression, it would be like basically the recipe for their collapse and mm -hmm. they would not be able to survive that politically. So there is a little margin between um, feeling that you are free and actually threatening the structures, you right, know? Right, if, right, If you don't exceed that, if you don't succeed in mobilizing people based on, for example, class interests, but you are s talking about the economic system, that it's bad, that it needs to be changed, and you are talking about uh, the rich and the poor, but without having, you know, 10,000 people, for example, involved in your movement and advancing this rhetoric, you're still fine, you know? If you want to insult anyone in government or in the regional, uh, in the region, it's fine because it's still within their own realm of discourse. So it's still within their own conflicts. Mm. When you take a conflict to the next level, all of them will be threatened. Then whichever security agency you have in Lebanon, because you have a nice uh, mosaic and each one belongs to a different uh, zaim or sectarian group, whichever one wants to you know, arrest you and torture you, no one will mind if you go there. It's an interesting take. You know, I, I like that because you're you're part of that expression as well, and you've seen it sort of up front, I mean, your own sort of uh, sort of your own speech, if you will. That you're that you're. I, I I like this take on it. It's very present as well, and it's present given that the structure is in a way fighting for its survival, winning, but also fighting at the same time, and therefore you have that kind of. Maybe there's that sort of balance act in the process. But Ben, do you, do you feel the same way? At, at least in, in what Nizar said and, and that kind of the intimidation that we've seen, particularly the last few months since the uprising began, but going back even a little earlier, where there's this second guessing before you say something, or just caution, where you shouldn't necessarily be cautious? Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't. I, I wasn't here during that time, to be clear, so I don't have that same, you know, visceral knowledge that uh, you have, that Izar has. Uh, well, let's go to Susan then. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. So I would, uh, I would, I would, um, you know, knowing what I know about it historically and everything, you know, that that's something that is is that can happen again, certainly, if mm. the circumstances, ha uh, you know, line up. Uh, it is something that is very scary that that the fact that it could happen, you know, 2005 was not that long ago. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a very, very recent thing. Uh, these gains can, you know, slide backwards if you don't have strong organizations, you know, pushing forward. And, and luckily we have that, you know, we have. You know, a number of members of the press, uh, the media, um, you know, nonprofit organizations like uh, the Samirka Sir Foundation, you know, who really, you know, like this is their mission. They take this very seriously and they don't want to see any backsliding. Yeah. At the same time, I do think that there is some suppression where we maybe don't notice it today, mm. um, specifically dealing with. Uh, the banking sector and with Banque du Liban. And I, I mean, I, I have heard from different people and I know for a fact that in certain uh, situations, uh, BDL and or the banks have uh, brought some of their influence to bear uh, on journalists or others who are trying to speak out. Uh, that is, and, and, and the reason they do that goes to Nizar's point 
precisely if that's the, the the powers that be trying to hold together, you know, their uh, their economic hegemony of the country, right? If if BDL starts to get questioned, this is I'm talking especially uh, the, especially the numbers before are, the lira started going off the rails. Yeah, right. You know, right, they yeah. wanted to keep everything under wraps so much so. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that that is going on uh, still to this day. In, in some ways, and maybe we're not picking up on it quite as much as we should be. Uh, I, I, I think that free, you know, the freedom of expression and everything, it, it's great that, yeah, we can say whatever we want to about Mohammed bin Salman or uh, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei. You know, that's great. But what about critiquing local banks and BDL and stuff like that? To me, there still is, especially amongst People who know things in the financial community, they think multiple times before saying anything, even in private, to mm, someone, mm. you know. Uh, and I worry about that. So it's almost like a, it's taking it one step further what, from what Nizar said, that there's wiggle room for regional expression, but not so much when it comes to domestic concern, or it's shrinking if there's a bubble, okay, yeah. it's maybe gotten, it's shrinking, but that you can still kind of leave Lebanon and criticize beyond the borders in ways maybe that right, you things couldn't. Things that don't matter to the people in power, they don't care, you know? Right, right. Or if there's somebody else, another powerful person who will protect that speech, okay, whatever. There's mm. nothing they could do about it. But, yeah, once you get to those common shared interests, then, <laughs> the, then it's a different game. I mean, this is... We can include this if, with your permission. It's entirely up to you. I know since you kind of you experienced what it's like to report for a Lebanese newspaper, uh, leaving the paper aside, not that sort of that the glory, <laughs> the <laughs> not that the years that you did work. Did you feel any censorship? Not not in a uh, maybe not censorship. Was there a was there a push at any given point to say no no we can't do this that we it's easier to speak about the region than it is to talk about at home. And I know that you left just as the protests were sort of kicking off. So was it November, if I'm not mistaken, that you that you left the Daily Star? Or uh, they 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 let me go in December. Sorry, December. And I should fix that. They let you go. You're right. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but uh, I I would say they fired me. Uh, but <laughs> they, <laughs> when you technically were... <laughs> they let me go. Yeah. But so in December. But but that you saw. I mean, the beginning of the protest. But you had that long view as well. Working in an, in a Lebanese newspaper. Was there an, ever any sort of pressure that ignore this domestic story? It's too sensitive. Or, or was any of that happening? At least when it comes to traditional journalism, traditional uh, reporting. Uh, no, no, not, not at the Daily Star. Um, uh, I, I think for most stories, uh, you know, the, the editors were more than happy to, you know, well, it's a story. If it's a legitimate news story, let's write something up on it. I think that, uh, where the political pressure comes into play is maybe more in the details. How is that story reported? Mm, what is mm, the headline? Mm. What is the lead? Right. What's the angle that you take? And I, I think in essentially any news outlet here in Lebanon, you, you do have that. Uh, you, th there's no such thing as like this, you know, totally free press that's totally divorced from the political reality yeah. of the society it reports on. 
Um, and, and especially in a place where you don't have as strong of a tradition of giving media its independence uh, and full voice, all the media outlets, I think, have to be a bit careful about yeah. how they report on things. And, and, and sometimes it's a good thing, you know, being a bit more careful, but sometimes it can be a bad thing as well because they maybe cover certain things differently or more lightly or gloss over things because of political considerations. That's interesting. It's more consideration than, than censorship in that sense. It's more, uh, you know, trying to package it properly rather than skip that story altogether. I'm I'm trying to walk a very fine tight wire right now. No, no, I, I, no and I appreciate that, and I also appreciate the, you did you expressed certain things on Twitter when you did when when they let you go. Yeah, and I remember that kind of yeah. uh, you in a way you acknowledged a few things, and I think that that, that is I think you kind of shared that openly, which is um, they never told you don't don't talk about one issue, but I but I do appreciate that there's sort of always a consideration on how to how to deliver it. And within the Lebanese context. No, I appreciate that. Right, right. But, but Susan, your own experience, executive magazine, and your own experience producing a podcast, and your own experience living in Lebanon, you're part of this alternative media today, podcasting, mm-hmm. or let's call it new media, whatever you want to call it. The right media, the wrong, I don't know. Do you have that kind of feeling that, that it's still there is enough breathing space for the reasons Nizar expressed for the reasons Ben shared that it's about maybe packaging it's curtailing certain things but that there's no outright pressure to avoid names or avoid topics see I would say it's not that there's it's not an obvious thing but there's an insidiousness to the self-censorship that happens in Lebanon so like every news organization like Ben says they know who their backers are. They know, you know, writing the story as a journalist, what's going to get past people and what's not, what the line is. And so then it depends. It's always like an individual choice for a person, like how far do I push this? Mm. And I think that's, it's just, there's a lot of self-censorship that happens, I think. And I even seen it like with the podcast experience, Ben is our lovely bits, have no filter. I am the filter. They have said things in the past, and I've been like, absolutely not. This is coming out straight away. So, and so, that's me self-censoring but like, sorry, ourselves. That's, that's not vulgarity. That's topic. That's, that's yeah. Right. So you, it's, so you, it's, it's you, comments that they have made that I would, you know, the bell of defamation went off in my head. I, without naming names, without the actual words used necessarily, can I just have a feel of what you're talking about? Maybe just the, the, the broadest angle towards a, a thing that you would deliberately leave out, and which is in I a think, way, it's, it is self-censorship, but it's not sort of yeah. the more vicious form of it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again and walk a very fine line here. But well, it's when then, then things are said afterwards <laughs> everybody knows are true. So, but you still again. can't so, say them. So when you say things that everyone knows are true, but you don't have the evidence to say the things you're saying, hmm. and in the Lebanese like culture of media and the defamation laws the way they are, you have to always have that moment of like, I want to say that. So I would love if we could say that, but we're not going to say that. So it's, it's it's in that familiar world of defamation and and insult. The reasons why somebody like Gino gets called in regularly, or why that it's it's yep. more in that terrain. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. And I know it's I, I mean, just. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, uh, I, I mean, for to give you a taste of it, I don't, I don't know if I can say this or not, or if Susan will, will. I'm me, not producing this. This is all running. Susan so has veto. One time, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, uh, so one time, for instance, I compared a certain famous Lebanese leader to a certain religious figure, and <laughs> in the way that she I is viewed <laughs> by certain people. And it was probably a good thing that Susan cut that out. <laughs> mm, I see. So that's yeah. not even defamation, though. That's more like uh, people. It's, it's knowing the lines here. Like there, there are certain things that people yeah. don't appreciate. Yeah. And we can get our point across and make the points that we're trying to make without doing that, without alienating people in certain ways. Then, then I'm happy to do that. So in some ways, censorship can work in the sense of you're trying to widen your audience, you're trying to make sure you don't like alienate anyone but so yeah really, i do think that's born out of not wanting to offend maybe a certain listener's uh religious sensibility yeah okay say. right right and i think a lot of that here is why people self-censor i've noticed you know you're allowed to say there's no line when it's not about what affects people personally or their own political views and then the second you try and cross that suddenly there's a line again so it's always about navigating that depending on like where you're working and who you're working for and it's difficult at times I'm, I'm curious sure. yeah. just I mean for this is more just a, maybe I would never be able to ask you this are there moments where let's say Nizar uh, you you're okay with something being shared and your your own uh, concerns are not you don't feel any sort of threat per se that you're okay but that Ben and Susan maybe you're like no 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 we can't take that risk I'm um, just in terms of the dynamics at play of somebody who's Lebanese through and through, and people that, in a way, are Lebanese too. But you're, Lebanon is a home as opposed to a nationality. That you're not Lebanese citizens per se. You don't have the kind of you said it earlier that skin in the game, whatever that is that Nizar yeah. has and you guys may not. Is there any kind of go back and forth? I, I there? can preempt Nizar's answer here and say I'm definitely err on the side of caution. More than either Ben or Nizar would. Oh, I think. okay. That's actually nice to know. So there's, yeah. it's almost like a unison between you, Nizar and Ben. But then Susan's really the more, uh, the care, the more careful producer. I mean, I'd like to say reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> would be the word I would I use. Yeah. <laughs> less, I, mean, less. I think I think if you want to be very honest. Ben is the most irresponsible in these things because he's 100%, like, 100%. He doesn't mind insulting anyone. Like. There are a lot of times that Nazar stops the show and goes, Ben, you can't say that. And I'm like, don't worry. It's already been crossed out in my mind. That's hilarious. <laughs> but it's fucking true. Yeah. That's so funny. So, Ben, you're the wrecking ball in the podcast. Everyone's like, no. And you're like, yes. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> We've got a good system. We balance each other out pretty well. Yeah. You really do. You really do. And it shines. It shines in your episodes. I know. I, I mean, I'm not trying to. I, I mean it as somebody who's a listener, as, as a fan. It shines. It comes through. I like this dynamic. And for many reasons, this has been an honor just to get to know you guys a little better and what you do. Uh, I started podcasting. I don't know if that's the right word. I think I think it does have a verb yeah. to it. Podcasting. Yeah. Uh, last summer. And I did stories. Sort of each episode was a story meant to connect to the next story. And I never thought, I never imagined that this sort of would include the October Uprising. 
would include spending every day in Martyrs Square, interviewing people from all walks of life, uh, economists, politicians, everyday citizens, anyone curious and on board with change. And it, it was it was a thrill, real thrill. And uh, no, I think and it's it's fun. It's great to get to meet people that do do this as well. So for me, there's many reasons why I, I really appreciate you guys spending an hour and a half with me. Uh, Nizar, good luck tomorrow. I, I wish you the best. You. Ben, uh, <laughs> if you, uh, the next episode, if I hear like a cut, I know what happened. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly, exactly. And, and, and can I just say, sure. Ronnie, like I'm a big fan of your podcast as well. And I think it is, it is absolutely great that like there are more, podcasts about Lebanon out there, you know, uh, the more this information is accessible, the more diversity of viewpoints that we get, uh, it, the better, the, the better chance we have, you know, of actually helping and pushing things in the right direction. And I think uh, you it, in your uh, sort of long form, uh, very probing questions that really uh, make people answer uh, and answer honestly, and just the diversity of guests you have, uh, uh, we really, really appreciate you doing all of this as well. You're very kind, yeah, I sir. Agree. Definitely. And Ronnie, I think that uh, you there's this thing where uh, you know you feel that someone is taking a step back and reflecting on things rather than being you know a journalist that yeah. is so concerned with getting all opinions on what happened with the Bank de Liban circular. You know, like uh, when you're asking these questions that are you know about change about our feelings towards happening about just from this conversation, but also when I was listening to conversation, for example, with, uh, was it uh, Ziad Majid, right? Uh, yeah. One of the, one of the episodes I really loved was with Ziad Majid because you were asking about like, um, questions that you can't answer unless you've lived a whole decade or two or three and you've had experiences, uh, uh, and you've had different points of, uh, uh, like different uh, stages of political analysis, your mind has changed so many times, and then at this point, you reflect on this uh, on this big question, and your opinion kind of encompasses a lot of different uh, experiences. So this is the advantage of, of your kind of format, and I'm really happy that you're doing it. I wish I had uh, more patience and time to listen to more and more episodes than I listen from your show, but I really love uh, the format and the calmness and the patience you have in, in debating people. So Keep it up, yeah. You're very kind, Nizar. And the fact that you even listened to that episode, I, I went to Paris to meet him. I actually went to Paris to meet Ziad Mejid in person and uh, Ziad Dwayri. It was back-to-back. This is when I first started. I met Basil Flehan's uh, wife, Yasma, in, in Geneva, and Nadim Houri, who left Human Rights Watch in Beirut and now lives in Paris, Arab Reform Initiative. This was when I was trying to figure out how to do this. And the thrill was getting to meet these people for the first time, having these very nice exchanges, and usually in their homes. I went to Ziad Mejid's home. And you know what? It, the, I, I know I'm taking more of your time, and I should have, I should have, I mean, I apologize for this. Uh, I was a nah, big, big fan of Samir Asir. Huge fan. Uh, I started giving my Walk Beirut tour largely as a tribute to him. So for me to get to be that close for a few hours with his dear comrade, and also, in a way, reflect on similar pain that we both feel. Different, maybe different circumstances, but it's that kind of you feel something familiar, and it came out. And I loved, I loved that ability to kind of reflect. 
patiently, who knew Samir Asir very well, and in a way talk about my father at the same time, without it being jarring or negative or sad or depressed. None, none of that. It was just a very sweet story. So I, I really, I'm, I'm honored that you sat through, even that you know that that episode exists for me is, uh, is an honor. So thank you for oh. that, Nizar. Um, Susan, I hire you for my podcast. You're welcome to come. <laughs> I don't know how much you charge, but uh, I don't have it. So I'm going to leave all of this in your hands. It's, it's very nice to not have to worry about the editing once this is done. Right? Yeah, this has nothing to do. Exactly. It's it's twice as long as your magic uh, sweet spot. So it's an hour and a half, but it was worth every minute. Thank you to all three of you. And I hope to have you back on at some point and we'll catch up where we leave off today. Again, it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Mm -hmm.